0: know your name, I swear I do. It's on the tip of my tongue. Sorry, what did you say? And I've known you for how long? Your face is so familiar, but no. everyone. Welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm Lori LeBay, the host and founder of Alzheimer Speaks. I'm thrilled to have you with us today, and I'm happy to be back on Blog Talk Radio. Before we get started um, with our show today, though, I always get new listeners, and so people are always asking, what exactly is Alzheimer's Speak? What do you do? So bottom line, Alzheimer's Speaks is an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. We're also viewed as a media outlet because we use so many different platforms. We truly believe that by joining forces and sharing knowledge and just having these everyday conversations about life with dementia, that we're going to be able to help improve the stigmas attached to memory loss and help people who are living with the disease and those that are caring for them continue to live life to the fullest and with purpose. And uh, these conversations I find are just fascinating and I feel honored to be able to talk to all of the people that I do around the world. In addition, we also believe very strongly that um, collaboration is the only way we're going to win this battle against dementia. And I know it's working thanks to each and every Every one of you. You see, your likes, your clicks, and your shares have had a huge impact on Alzheimer's Speaks. By sharing our content, like the radio show or our Dementia Chats webinars, where I interview people who are the true experts, those diagnosed, or if it's our blog or our YouTube channel, um, when you share, um, our content out there, you are raising awareness in your own sphere, you are helping people reach out and grab information when they're ready to do it. And you got us a- acknowledged by share and Dr. Oz is the number one influencer online, um, as well as um, Maria Schreiber recognized um, recognized us as a um, architect of change for humanity. And again, we couldn't have gotten that exposure without you. So I I really thank you. And I I hope you'll continue to like each and every show and episode and article that we push out and share it with your groups. Because I know people don't have a lot of time, but it is making a huge difference because there are so many people in our own spheres that haven't talked about this that haven't really come out of the closet that they're dealing with this and it's it's very very important that we get them good solid information so thank you very much I also want to let our listeners know that, you know, maybe, just maybe you could be our next guest. Um, Here on Alzheimer Speaks Radio, we like to raise everyone's voice. So if you are diagnosed with dementia, or maybe you haven't been diagnosed, but you're having some issues and you'd like to tell your story, um, we'd love to hear that. Maybe you're caring for a loved one or a friend. Maybe you're a professional care partner. Uh, maybe you're a researcher. We've had singers and songwriters and film directors on. Um, we've had children on that are making a difference. So, um, you know, many, many authors. Uh, it's endless. All of us have an impact and a kind of a thought principle regarding how we should care for those with dementia. Um <clears throat> Above that, I also want to let you know that we are doing a cruise this summer, or this summer, this fall. Shows where I am. It's still nice in Minnesota here, (laughs) even though we're almost in October. We're going to be doing a dementia friendly cruise, and we're going to be going to the Eastern Caribbean. Um, November 11th through the 18th, and there's still room to get on that cruise if you'd like. Um, we've got a great symposium, and we have four people actually diagnosed with dementia who will be our speakers along with myself, Cindy Lazinski who is a um, Heading up a dementia friendly community in Colorado and then we have um, Becky Watson who's a music therapist and then our, our four people diagnosed are uh, Harry Urban, Michael Ellen Bogan, Mary Reed and Lori Shear who is going to be with us today. So um, we are really looking forward to um, To going on that cruise and getting to meet everybody. I also want to just uh, Remind people too that on our homepage, alzheimerspeaks.com Um, There is a brochure that you can download Just called Helpful Tips When Dealing With Dementia. It's just a great way to be able to interact um, with one another. Um, Now, our show today, I'm really excited about it. We're going to be talking about self-care, stress, empathy, and sympathy. And we are so lucky to have Dr. Arthur Sarah McColey with us, who is a licensed clinical psychologist who has been treating clients for more than 35 years. He is a contributor to the Creative Living Foundation and was the former chief medical officer at SoundMinds.org, and he is also in private practice. We're going to call Dr. Sarah McCauley, Dr. C, just for ease um, so we're not tripping over my own lips here. And uh, he's given us permission to do that. Um, Basically, Dr. C has been on the faculty of Harvard Medical School for several years as the chief psychologist um, at the Metro West Medical Center and director of the Metro West Counseling Center and the Alternative Medicine Division of Metro West uh, Wellness Center. And um, that's in Massachusetts. He has also written numerous books and has appeared on a lot of different national TV shows like CNN and Fox News. Um, Good Morning um, America on the weekend, Um, the O'Reilly Report, and the list just goes on. His latest book, which we're going to be talking about today, is called The Stress Solution, Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to Reduce Anxiety and Develop Resilience. Um, And the book was just recently published in China as well. So welcome, Dr. C. I, I can't wait to talk about this book. I think this is a critical. Thing that the whole world needs right now is to reduce our stress. Let's see, we are having a little difficulty, so let me see if I can get them on here. Dr. C, are you with us?
1: I'm with you. Can you hear me?
0: Yep, I can now. So okay. that was technical error on my behalf, so I will take full responsibility for you're, that you're one. Forgiven. <laughs> you're forgiven. <laughs> Well, I am, like I said, I'm really excited to talk about your book. I'm going to um, just give a brief introduction of Lori Scheer, um, who I just uh, so highly respect, and she's going to be my co-host today. Lori is one of our Dementia Chats experts, and she's been living with dementia, and um, she will just add so much value to this conversation. So Lori, if you want to tell people a little bit about yourself, that would be fantastic. Lori, are you there?
2: Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I am. I apologize. I thought I I unmute it and I mute it. In 2013, I was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's and FTD, which is frontotemporal degeneration. And during the past few years, we've observed some decline, but yet. Uh, all in all, we strive to make the best of each and every day and live the most positive life we can each and every day.
0: And Wonderful. And it's a pleasure to
2: work with someone like Lori who understands that.
0: Well, great. It's totally my honor. Um, to get started here, uh, Dr. C., I always like to ask all of our guests um, first question, and that is, have you been personally touched by dementia in your own family or circle of friends?
1: Well, certainly a circle of friends, Laurie, and I believe that um, both grandparents, one on each side, undiagnosed at the time because, of course, they passed away some time ago. And in those days, I think the diagnosis was just sort of seen as senility, and mm-hmm. um, I don't think it was very specific. But I could see, certainly as a young man, I, I could see that my grandparents, uh, on one on each side, were losing memory, and short-term memory was very poor, and other symptoms uh, becoming very angry, and personality changes, uh, much of which I'm sure you're, you, you're aware of. Um, so not formally in my own family, but certainly with friends and um, and, and and older friends, particularly because we have a home in Maine, too, and I have some elderly friends there who are suffering with Alzheimer's. And I also have treated many, many family members who have a parent or a spouse with Alzheimer's. So... Um, uh, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with the devastation that it, it wrecks in a family as a whole and and the heartbreak of it all, of course.
0: Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. I just think that that's always helpful for our listeners. Um, I want to start out with um, talking about what the definition to you is of of empathy um, because I think that that's just such an important um, piece in mm-hmm. in how we handle things.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, empathy is the capacity to understand and respond to the unique experiences of another. It's essentially everyday mind reading. It's part of our genetic endowment. It's not an emotion or a feeling, but a capacity that's innately uh, present. You know, we're born with this capacity, but if it's not developed, it atrophies like an unused muscle. And, And I know from leading group sessions for more than 25 years that human beings can be taught how to expand their empathic range and, and that will reap profound benefits because, really, empathy allows us to see beyond the surface and into the heart and soul of another human being and to find the commonality and that we know that all human beings have more in common than we, than we are dissimilar. So empathy really is the, is the ability to connect. And, and one of the most fascinating things, which I really accented in this book, is that when you give and receive empathy, we release the near-miracle neurotransmitter oxytocin. And that's the neurotransmitter that we, women release when they're pregnant. And oxytocin reduces anxiety, and it reduces the stress hormone cortisol. We know from, from legitimate research that it helps us live longer. It aids in recovery from illness, and it promotes a sense of common and well-being and generosity, and it also expands empathy. So it's been called the love hormone or the connecting hormone because it creates bonding and an increase in trust in others. So empathy, the giving and receiving of empathy, you know, I I wrote a book called The Power of Empathy in 2000. We, We couldn't prove the brain changes that it causes, but now we know that empathy really allows us to not only see into the heart and soul of another person, but it has profound brain, immune system, and overall benefits to our physiology.
0: Oh, interesting, very interesting. Um, can you tell us what you you term as empathic CBT and, and what that means?
1: Well, I'm combining cognitive behavioral therapy with empathy, Laurie, and cognitive behavioral therapy really focuses on distorted thinking. And what I try to accent is that stress is really accentuated by perception. You know, if if you're frowning, and I think it's because you're angry with me, and then I find out two days later, you just had a headache. I live with the stress of two days, thinking you don't care about me or you don't like me. And CBT focuses, cognitive behavioral therapy focuses on corrected distorted thinking and distorted perceiving. Distortions like generalizing or black and white thinking, catastrophizing, mind reading, magnifying, all these ways that we learned early in life to perceive that don't allow us to see the truth of another person. So much of my work, it's been to help people understand the prejudices we have toward ourselves and toward other people so that we can, can not only perceive other people accurately but ourselves accurately. Because when we misperceive, we produce cortisol, the stress hormone cortisol, and cortisol has many negative effects. You know, it, it causes inflammation, it causes negative thinking, it, it causes weight gain because it throws off the blood sugar levels in the body and causes fat cells to enlarge. It causes depression and it causes memory loss. So cortisol is one of those substances that, if it's 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 in abundance in our system, it really influences the memory part of the brain.
0: Okay, interesting, Lori. Any comments on that? I'm I'm just curious,
2: Doctor C. I know your your definition is seeing things as they really are. Um, for me, someone who is diagnosed w- with dementia diseases, mm-hmm. how do you relate to me as far as the empathy for me and where I should be at?
1: Well, empathy would mean, would mean Laurie, that I would really try to understand what your experience is like, what this has been for you. And, and you know, I'm very sorry that you've, you've, you're suffering through this, and um, you, you sound quite bright to me, so... Um, but I'm sure it's having its effect and, and on those who love you. So it's, it's, empathy would hopefully allow me to understand your entire experience. And I think it makes a difference when you feel understood. For instance, if you did feel that I was understanding you and through the use of empathy and we were, we were in a reciprocal empathic relationship, it's going to help you. It's going to help your brain. It's going to help reduce inflammation in the brain. And it's going to help you feel better and create bonds with other people. So it it releases the burden of going through something this difficult because you feel very connected to others.
0: Does that make sense? And, And
2: how how does that how would you say for someone with with dementia?s How do you relate the empathy to their care partners on how they should Um, relate to the person with dementia?
1: Well, I I think first, and and I'm sure you're aware of this, the educational piece is very important because I think people often misinterpret it, especially in the beginning, and then it, it, it can make a person impatient. And, you know, empathy really calms the emotional brain so we can see the truth and understand the facts of what's happening. So sometimes when people have dementia, or they have memory loss that it, it, people get irritated and impatient and they think they're, they're not really listening or they're not really trying. And it has to be pointed out that it, it isn't something that the person is trying to do. Of course, no mm-hmm. one wants to lose brain function. And I think the education mm-hmm. and, and the calming down and, and creating through empathy a support system for caregivers, the, the people that are caring for that individual as well, because we need support. It's too much to go through just two people. We need the family, mm-hmm. we need the community, we need educators, we need Alzheimer's experts like Lori who can help with, uh, you know, group group therapy, group to- togetherness, chat rooms, e- everything that we can do to help that person not feel alone. Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: good. Great. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask you, and it's kind of um, interesting we're on this topic because we, for Dementia Chats, and I haven't released the recording yet, I have to edit it, um, but we were talking about kind of stress in the media and the impact of of news. I'm just wondering, um, from your perspective, what has caused our stress rates to rise, or, or maybe they haven't. I'm just I'm making that assumption. Um, but can you speak to that?
1: Yes. Well, Lori, our, our stress rates have risen. I mean, this is the reason that I wrote this book. Um, you know, studies indicate that Americans have fewer friends than we, we had even 15 years ago. Trust has decreased as well as the degree of empathy shown to others, while prejudice has increased and relac- race rel- relations have deteriorated. And half of Americans lie awake at night due to job stress, and three-quarters indicate they suffer from emotional or physical stress daily. Seventy percent of Americans say they hate their jobs. Seventy percent su- say they suffer from workplace bullying. And three-quarters of the, um, uh, the visits to primary care physicians just two years ago were due to stress. So it, it's, really, it, it's really pervasive. And in, in all the civilized nations, we came in 13th in stress and overall health. So um, it's affecting everyone. And Why is it? Um, I think that we have, we, we've become a society that we place a great emphasis on achievement, status, and appearance, and far less on character and relationships. You know, many people have learned how to achieve in our society, but they don't know how to love and make lasting, deep friendships. And this lack of love and relational connections is the missing ingredient that plagues many people's lives. And as we all know, our political climate is symbolic of the lack of empathy, low trust, and high high stress in our society right now because the American Psychological Association just a few months ago indicated that the stress rates have risen again, and it's mainly... Around the political climate, people are feeling very scared. Um, this issue with North Korea, uh, the NFL—I mean, it seems like something comes up every week. Immigration. There's a lot of anxiety and stress in our country right now, and we have to very, very much start to use our empathy to focus on the facts and the truth, and not get not get carried away with cognitive distortions like people are thinking we're going to have a nuclear war or you know our our constitution is is really being violated we have to slow slow down and and one of the the chief ways to practice empathy empathy is to slow down because we have to calm the brain so that we can think rationally not impulsively
0: okay well that makes a lot of a lot of sense and kind of gets me to my next question i wanted to ask you is um I, I'm assuming, because I think it does for me anyways, stress really interferes with my own personal self-care. And I can get wrapped into that. And um, again, today when we were recording the dementia chats, I had mentioned how I used to kind of um, pull away from the news and not listen to it because it was so negative. But then with yeah. all the hurricanes and everything, I got I got sucked into watching the weather channel of all things <laughs> almost 24-7. And, and then, you know, you add all the other things on top of it because I was worried about family and friends and multiple locations and I I could just feel my anxiety raising and I knew that I should be doing something different for myself, but it's like I couldn't even stop the cycle almost.
1: Yes, because once, once you start to feel stress, you release cortisol. And if you don't sort of pick up the needle and, and stop the record... You, you get carried away with it, and that's where the distorted thinking comes in. And once you do that, you're creating all those negative consequences. The, the stress hormone cortisol really causes repetitive negative thinking, so, and it also makes our thinking very black and white and narrow. So we have to try to catch ourselves, slow ourselves down and say, wait a minute, this is scary. We, we don't know. We didn't know a lot about people in Puerto Rico or in Florida. What facts do we know? Is it healthy to watch the news six hours straight? No, it isn't. So what do we, we have to try to focus on the truth. What is the truth of what we know so that we can maintain our own health? And a lot of the way we we react to any stressor is conditioned early in life. You know, I always say that we, we write a novel early in life about ourselves and a lot of it is fictional. And we write that novel based on the, the eyes we look into to see who we are. When we're, when we're very young, we don't know who we are. We don't know which way we should perceive. And we look into the eyes of other people to find out who we are. Well, a lot of times we're looking into the eyes of people who have their own biases and distortions. So it's like looking into a circus mirror. And we form a view of ourselves that's based on that early feedback that can often be inaccurate. I mean, that's a lot of what prejudice is made up of, prejudice toward ourselves and toward others. So if you were told you were unattractive, unathletic, not very bright as a child, you go into adulthood thinking that other people think that of you too, and they, they don't necessarily, but you're carrying that with you. And our job as adults is we have to rewrite that early story and make it a nonfiction account. Making an objective, truthful account of who we are, so that we can reduce our own internal negative thinking, and we can perceive the outside stresses accurately and not adding any weight onto them based on our early conditioning
0: okay well that that makes a lot of sense. Um, can you tell me a little bit about um, the difference between because I think people get these mixed up all the time empathy and sympathy
1: yes well. Empathy, the heart of empathy is understanding, Lori. The heart of sympathy is consoling. I'll, I'll give you an example. For instance, I had a client not long ago who moved here from California, very, very nice lady. And her dad had passed away about six months before she moved. And she was very, very close to her father. And then she heard in the neighborhood a woman that she'd only met once in passing, but she had heard that her father died. So she put together a basket of flowers and some food, and she walked down to the woman's house, and she rang the doorbell. And when the woman answered, she said, Oh, my God, I just heard about your dad. You must be devastated. My dad died six months ago. I was devastated. I'm so, so sorry. Let me give you something. And the woman looked at her, and she said, You know, I I really appreciate your graciousness, but uh, I'm not devastated. My father left our family when I was two years old. I wouldn't recognize my father if I saw him on the street. He never visited us. I never had any contact with him. So, you know, unfortunately, I don't feel the same way you do. See, sympathy rushes into console. Empathy takes its time to understand the facts and the truth. That's why I said earlier one of the key aspects of empathy is slowing down, using the thinking part of the brain, not the emotional part of the brain. Sympathy rushes into console. Empathy takes its time to understand the truth and the facts.
0: Okay. Uh, Lori, any questions or comments you want to add? I think this, this
2: all sounds wonderful, but I'm wondering how do I go about doing this? How do I step back and and take away the stress and the pressure and really have empathy. How does my husband do that when he's dealing with me on a bad day? How do you go about it?
0: Well,
1: as I said, one of the, one of the first steps is to slow down um, because if you don't slow down, if you're reacting quickly, most of the time we're going to have difficulty listening. I mean, and when we're reacting quickly, we're, we're seldom present in the moment and and you know a lot of times when we're listening we're not really we're we're not really focusing on what we're hearing we're reloading one one of my patients says he's always reloading he's trying to he's figuring out what to say or how to solve the problem while the other person is talking so you know the listening piece is very important and the slowing down to listen is very important and secondly is you know you don't want to be perfectionistic about it your husband i mean he's going to make mistakes this is this isn't easy. It's not easy for you, and it's not easy for him, and it's not easy for all the people who care about you. So it's not like you know every day he's going to have the perfect response, but he has to try. And if he if he, if he makes a mistake or he is a little impatient, you have to try to understand that too. That you know he loves you, he's worried about you, and and his his patience or his tolerance maybe is reaching a limit, and he needs to go out for lunch with somebody or a friend or or, or talk to someone who can understand him as well, that he could have some counseling and some support as well. I mean, that's what peer groups are for. That's what even, you know, uh, like someone like myself, I I work with a lot of people that are going through this to try to help them. We have family meetings. Sometimes they meet with individuals. You need a support system. But sometimes both parties need a break from each other because it's just too much. The burden is too heavy for either of you
0: well and i would like to just add in that i think a lot of times um when it comes to someone being ill and someone someone caring for another um that the break is only needed one way and i and i agree with you i think both sides <laughs> need the break um, because we can, we can drive each other crazy no matter who we are, no matter what position we're in. And, um, I, and I, I think that that's a real important thing for the audience to understand is nobody wants to be tied to somebody 24-7. We, we want our freedom and our thought process and, and sometimes just our alone time, um, you know, our downtime. And um, I think that comes on both sides. Again, every, everyone is an individual. Lori, what are your thoughts on that?
2: I agree. I think we 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 do need some downtime. I need time to listen to my music and get away. Um and sometimes a, a very tiny disagreement or misunderstanding can totally impact my my symptoms. Um so Getting away from each other, stepping away and just um, taking time to take a breath and and empathize figure out what could I have done different and what happened here. It, it is very important, it's extremely important, um, just as it's important for me to have my music to help my head relax, um, it's also important for him to be able to have space to take a breath. Mhm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think this is good information for all of us no matter what our situations it it applies to all of us. One of the things that I think um people struggle with is getting rid of kind of old negative story patterns that play out in our head. And um I know for for many and in myself at times too, I can get roped into old negative self-talk. Um, and, and what do you recommend to, to stop that?
1: Well, I have a chapter in the book, uh, Laurie, on self-talk, because I, I agree with you it's critically important, because the way we talk to ourselves makes a brain change. I mean, if you're talking negatively to yourself, you're again, you're going to produce stress hormones that are then going to influence your mood, and then you're not going to feel very tolerant or you're not going to be very easy to be with. So the way we talk to ourselves is important to recognize and to have help knowing what the truth is. And we can't do that alone. We're all too subjective. So first of all, it's, it's, trying to un, it's trying to record. That's why I wrote this book to be more of a workbook. At the end of each chapter, I ask people to jot down some comments and answer certain questions so that you can become more aware of your own self-voice and the records we repeat to ourselves each day. The more we're aware of it, whether, you know, your record, your internal record is different than mine, is different than Laurie's. So when you know exactly what it is, because we've repeated these things since we were children to ourselves, we can then sort of pick up the needle and stop the record instead of playing all 23 songs. And we need help to have, get feedback from other people, objective, objective feedback from people we trust and consider rational, to find out what the truth is about these negative things we do say to ourselves. Because when our, when our perceptions are distorted about ourselves or someone else, stress becomes a likely byproduct. And when you're suffering with these kind of organic illnesses, you, you can't afford additional stress. So, you know, one of the greatest achievements our minds can accomplish is the ability to perceive others and ourselves accurately, and that's where empathy comes in. So we have to, we have to realize that we can never really know ourselves accurately just by ourselves. We created a story early in life, just like you said, but we have to unravel that story and edit the book. And it takes time, but you have to really be committed to taking in what you hear from other people, plus and minus, to find out who we truly are. Our responsibility as adults is to rewrite that story, because if we don't rewrite that story, we have sensitivities that we carry into these difficult times. For instance, say that I'm extremely sensitive, and if... And if my wife has early stage Alzheimer's and she forgets something and she forgets to turn off the stove, I'm overreacting and, and I'm, I'm being very sensitive about it because I feel like she wouldn't, take my, she wouldn't take my feedback and I told her not to use the stove and now I'm angry with her and I'm hurt and slighted. That's all about my past. It has nothing to do with her. So we have mm-hmm. to know what our past sensitivities are so that we don't overreact in the present. Because sometimes, you know, if, if you know, if you understand the condition and you understand yourself and you've come to terms with yourself, then you kind of let it go. You don't make a big deal out of it. You don't make a big deal out of
0: nothing. Okay. That's, um, that makes sense to me. Um, can you uh, talk a little bit about, you had mentioned um, kind of a prejudice being a cause of stress. Um in your talk, and and if so, can you tell us a little bit of of how that how that comes about?
1: Well, you know, I was very glad that my publisher allowed me to write a, a chapter on prejudice in this book because it it really is it really is the heart of what I do against prejudice towards yourself and others. and the the people don't understand, I think often that when we encounter someone we have an inherent prejudice against, whether it's conscious or unconscious, we begin to experience a de- degree of stress. And when we're stressed, we release the stress hormone cortisol, which limits our capacity for empathy while also causing that repetitive negative thinking that I talked about earlier. So if you have prejudice against several types of people, it's likely that your cortisol levels will be consistently high. And what's that gonna do? It's gonna break down muscle tissue, cause flabbiness, depression, anxiety, weight gain, all those uh, those negative consequences that I mentioned earlier so prejudice is not even healthy on a physiological level it's not even healthy on a brain level so when we're stressed and we produce more cortisol we are because we don't feel comfortable with that person we have to sort of slow down and say do i even know this person one of my clients took took the train from boston to new york with his three young children and his wife and a man was sitting behind him who and he had on garb that he, my, my client, he didn't really say what he, what he had on, but it looked, he said he looked like a Muslim to me. He had something around his head, and, and I started to perspire. And one of the fellows in, in one of my group sessions said, well, why were you perspiring? And he goes, oh, I just thought about terrorism. And he, he was getting really anxious. And then he got off the train, and he was scurrying to, a, to get a cab for his children and his wife. And the fellow who he thought was a terrorist tapped him on the shoulder, and he said, your daughter dropped her doll. And he had gone about 30 yards out of his way to catch up with the, the fella to give, him, to, give his, to give him the doll that his daughter had left on the train. And he said, there I went overreacting again. And I realized that I produced a stress response, and it was based on my own movie, my own movie in my mind. It really wasn't happening in reality.
0: Oh, wow. That's interesting um, how that... How that all comes into play, and um, I, I do think that it's a very important factor um, to be able to talk about. So I'm I'm glad too that they allowed you to put that in in your book, um, Lori. Any comments on that? Yeah, you know, actually, I, Dr. C, I really appreciate what you say. Said
2: um, I used to in my previous life. I was very into training and in particular sales training and I really enjoyed Tony Robbins. Mm-hmm. Um and I think the power of self talk is so important. I now I'm a mentor, I mentor people newly diagnosed with dementia and when I was diagnosed the doctor basically said, get your affairs in order, go home and die mm-hmm. not quite in those words, but close. Um and what I have learned is that there are many situations where my husband and I can can talk me out of things, can uh, help change the way my head is through mm-hmm. music, through therapy, mm-hmm. whatever. But I also have people that I mentor that once they're diagnosed, it's, woe is me, I'm not getting out of bed, I'm not... Taking my pajamas off, there's no reason, and I'm doomed. why bother? Mm-hmm. And that attitude of just there is no purpose there I'm doomed definitely definitely has an impact on mm-hmm. so many people that are diagnosed not just with uh, dementia, but with many other yeah. physical and mental capacities where they just say, I'm done. The doctor said, I'm done, and that's it, Mm -hmm. and I I am totally in agreement with self-talk is such an important aspect of keep yourself moving, keep yourself going. Um, I was diagnosed in August of 2013, and the doctor didn't think within a year I may know my relatives and I'm still going, and I'm, Laurie, I think you can say I'm going pretty strong.
0: <laughs> you sure uh, are. You sure. I do think
2: a lot of that is a self-talk.
1: You certainly sound very strong and very clear-minded. And sure, I mean, the way you talk to yourself is going to make this worse or better. Because I, I think what's very important for everyone to realize is that every thought we have has a neurochemical correlate. If I call myself stupid, I change my brain chemistry. If I have an understanding self-voice, I keep my brain, stent, my, brain, my brain chemistry balanced. If if it's overly permissive or overly punitive, I throw it off. I produce different brain chemicals that can have a very negative effect on my health. So no matter what we're struggling with, we can make it worse or better. It's not over. I remember once my my uncle who... Was told something similar to what you were told, Lori. And uh, he was told to get his things in affairs, uh, get his affairs <laughs> into order and go to Vegas, Is that's what his doctor told him. And seven years later, he came in and he made an appointment with this doctor. And he walked in and he said, and the doctor looked very surprised because he had not seen him since then. He had changed physicians. And he said, I just wanted to come back to tell you something. And he said, what? He goes, um, uh, I never paid you my copay from the last session. He said, how come you didn't pay the copay?" He said, well, you told me to go spend everything I had, and here I am alive seven years later. He said, I think you ought to be a little careful to the information you give people because you, <laughs> give, you were giving me a, a lack of hope and despair, and thank God that I had a wife and son who gave me the opposite. He said, because here I am talking to you seven years later. You told me that I, it, was, it was over. And I guess that there is some mystery to this as well, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that that's, you know, we hear this a lot from people with dementia. And I'm sure it happens with other diseases as well. But that that lack of hope and connectiveness is is so huge. And um, you know people if they're a professional or not, we all just need to watch our words and um, understand the impact that we have on one another, I think much more closely and and really take that job very seriously instead of being so I don't know what I would term as self involved um, and and not paying attention to others that we're engaging. Uh, cause yes. we can do a lot of damage and that kind of gets me to, um, my next question I wanted to ask you is what do you think is missing in our society that there are so many people that feel unsatisfied, you know, with their lives?
1: I, I think Lori, that, that we, we have placed far, far too much emphasis on achievement, status, and appearance, quite frankly, and, mm-hmm. and far less on character and relationships I think um, people from all walks of life are discovering that what they thought would bring them happiness is really a myth. I mean, the idea that if you look if you look perfect and you have enough money, you're going to find all the love in the world is just mythical. It's not true. If you don't know how to connect with other human beings, if you don't know how to use your empathy to see into the soul and the heart of another person, if you don't know how to truly listen and create that deep connection with other people and have friends that really go throughout time with you. Um, you're not going to be happy. You're not, mm-hmm. you know, love love that kind of love that people are looking for, they don't realize it, but they think that through appearance and achievement you're going to find it. You know, it's all it's all a byproduct of giving. It's a byproduct of giving. We know people that are giving are 12 times more healthy and with all kinds of illness with all kinds of illnesses than people who aren't. People who are self-absorbed and right now we've been in a much more self-absorbed society. Narcissism is up. Empathy is down. Mm-hmm. And we have to get back to the basics that if you want to have love, if you want to be loved and respected in life, look, it's fine to achieve. We're on, we're on a radio show together. We're achieving. We're 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 trying to educate people and help them. So there's nothing wrong with achievement. That's a great thing. But if you think achievement alone and the way you look just in and of itself is going to bring you love and respect, you're going to end up depressed. I mm-hmm. see people in their 50s and 60s who have more money than God, and they come to see me because they don't know what else to do. One of my clients is a wealthy CEO, and he said to me last week, I don't know why I need to always be busy, but I don't know why. And I said, I know why. Because if you slow down, you have to all the thoughts that you've been running away from all your life are going to come to the forefront. Yep. And, you know, and what kind of partner does he make? He's always busy, he's always on his phone, he's always on his laptop, he's always going out to dinner with clients, and his wife is, is leaving him. and he's surprised. He goes, "Poor economic choice." that's what he said to me, on her part. <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I don't think she's thinking of, of, of economics right now. Maybe she's thinking of being happy, and happy, yeah. happiness is a byproduct of giving. It's not something that you can pursue directly. Mm-hmm. You give to other people, you have empathy for other people, and they for you, and you will, you, you change your brain chemistry. Mm-hmm. You're going to be happier.
0: Yeah, and doesn't the world need more of that? Boy, oh, boy. Um, you know, you talk about giving, and um, I think wrapped into that is, is the whole piece about being authentic in terms yes. of who you are. Would you agree with that?
1: Yes. I, you know, I have, as you know, I have a chapter on authentic, authenticity and giving because I think those are two critical pieces of, of, of being healthy. You know, if, if you have to live a life of pretense and you have to try to live up to somebody else's image, of what you you think they want you to be or you think what's acceptable it's a burden and you can't relax within yourself and to some degree you feel like you're a fraud because you know you're only acting I'm only telling you what you want to hear because I'm trying to get you to like me but what kind of relationship is that what kind of friendship is that I have a friendship with you because I'm, I'm doing what I think is pleasing to you but I'm but I'm not really being myself The only time we really feel self-respect and integrity within ourselves is when we know I can be myself, pluses and minuses, and you you accept me anyway. Mm -hmm. That's the deeper part of love. That's mature love. Mm -hmm. When, When you're not being authentic, you're pretending. And pretense is a burden. It takes an enormous amount of energy. The other thing is authenticity attracts. People like other people who are authentic and real and vulnerable. You know vulnerability we have to learn that vulnerability is a strength when you open yourself up and you talk about some of your imperfections and not that you're guilty or or you're 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 punishing yourself but you're just being honest yeah i'm not I'm not very good at that or I'm not a very good artist or you're just being honest it makes other people feel comfortable
0: yeah yeah i I totally agree with that I totally agree with that and and I think when we do that it just it allows them to be authentic it takes the scary out of the out of the wibbliness that we feel with life sometimes we don't always feel so strong and we just feel wibbly and 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 it's okay to be wibbly it's okay to to not you know feel solid and none of us are going to be all the time and you know Mm -hmm. to me it gets back to that whole yin and that yang that you know you can't be happy without sad you you know you 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 have to have that swing in order to be able to Figure out where where do you sit in the pendulum, yes. otherwise you turn into a Stepford wife, and you know they weren't all that happy. They had a smile on their face, but <laughs> that was about it. So yeah, yeah. Um, yes, yes, very- yes, I, I
1: I fully agree. Life, Khalil Gibran said that life is, you know, and and I think that's what it is. And you know the Buddhists talk about that as well often about how you, you through through your suffering you learn what happiness is.
0: Mhm. Yeah. That is well, true. Yeah, and I think that there's always wonderful life lessons wrapped in that suffering if we slow down and ask ourselves if we if we change the perspective of uh, instead of, you know, why is my life always in crisis and and you know, I have learned to just open it up and say what it, what am I supposed to learn? Yeah. And then once once I actually I, and I physically say that out loud. Um, usually the answers come to me fairly quickly and I can stop spinning and go, oh, oh, well, I never looked at it like that before. And then I want to share what I've learned, um, you know, so that maybe others don't have to go through through that. But I, I um I, you know, I love all of the concepts that you have here in your in your book. um Another thing that I wanted to talk about. I can't believe our hours almost up. we only have like ten minutes left. Um Can you tell our audience what is performance addiction?
1: Yeah, performance addiction is the belief that perfecting appearance and achieving status that will secure love and respect. It's an irrational belief system that's learned from early family experiences and it's reinforced by. A material appearance-driven society. You know, my first recognition of performance addiction came about largely as a result of my work with a group of individuals who had embodied so many of the qualities of high, the highly regarded and professional and public life. You know, their resumes were very impressive, but I noticed that despite their capabilities, they seemed to have little regard for their personal achievements in their own physical appearance. They all seem to be what I call scoreboard watchers. Every day they take inventory of how well or how terribly they're performing or how attractive or dreadful they look in the mirror. And unfortunately, they do that with their spouses and their children, and they tend to drive people crazy because they, they are convinced that appearance and status is the road to love and respect. And again, it's, it's a mythical idea that comes from family, comes from family values, or, and and it's also reinforced to a great deal by our society, our very driven society.
0: Mm-hmm. Lori, any any thoughts on that?
2: For me, um, no. I I do have a question though, if I may, Doctor C. Sure. Um, other than number one, by your book, which I think is a good idea. If if you were talking to someone, just Um, in a new situation where they're dealing with a loved one with a terminal disease or they are diagnosed with a terminal disease, Mm -hmm. how would you you tell them the top three things to do?
1: Make sure that you're open about it. Talk about it. I mean, two, pay very close attention to your self-care. I think if you – I'm, a, I'm a, a very big believer in prayer and spiritual values, so if you have those, I would really accent them. And I, need, and I think you need a support system where you can talk about your emotions. And I think um, counseling, therapy is, is very important. I think there's a lot of support groups available, but unfortunately a lot of them only meet once a month, and it's a large group of people. So I think having a person that you can talk to one on one, a professional who has worked with people with terminal illness, and also who can work with your family, would be a very important guide to go through the process with.
2: Very good. Hmm. I think those values are. I think those those are very good. Thank you for that.
1: Sure, you're welcome.
0: Great. And um, wrapping up, you also speak of image, love in your talk, and and can you tell people a little bit more about what, what you mean by that and how that can help them?
1: Well, what I mean by image love is really coming from performance addiction. It's when we, we, really, don't, we really haven't made the distinction from sort of an adolescent kind of love, which is based on appearance mm-hmm. and, and, and status in whatever group you're in, versus a very deep, mature love. Because image love is not based on knowing another person. It's based on what you see from the surface. And it doesn't involve empathy. Because, again, with empathy, you fall in love with the character of another person. You fall in love with their soul. You don't fall in love with their face, their figure, or how much money they have. Not that those things don't matter to a certain degree. But what matters in the long term, if you're going to maintain long-term intimacy, is you have to love that person's soul, who they are, their character, Mm -hmm. their dependability, their honesty, their integrity. That's mature love. And mm-hmm. image love is not like that. It's all it's, it's all based on the surface. It's all based on walking around with somebody that you think other people are going to be jealous of you because you're with that person. Okay. When in fact they, they don't even care.
0: Okay. Um, in in wrapping up, is there um, a, a couple of things that you just want listeners to to know? Um, that might help them in terms of, of living with less stress and kind of getting off that, getting off that train. (laughs) Well, I would, I would say,
1: Laurie, a couple of things are that the, the majority of stress is produced by perception and perception can be altered by our biases. All human beings have biases toward ourselves and toward others. Find out and work on yourself and with other people to find out what your biases are toward yourself and others, so that you can perceive the truth in yourself and others. When you perceive the truth about yourself, you're more likely to perceive the truth about others, and your stress levels should should be reduced markedly.
0: mm mm-hmm. And do you find that it's hard for people to kind of take that inner look? Um, I, I just find that so many people don't want to. They don't want to go there. You know, it's, it's got to be somebody else's fault. It can't be anything that I can control because then I wouldn't have anything to complain about or, you know, whatever the reason is that they have. But I just find so many people just don't want to take that time to look deep and, and really kind of silence themselves and, and um, take a peek from a different direction.
1: Well, you know, I think, I think that's true, Lori. Um, what I try to tell people is you want to avoid doing the work and then all, and then all the years you spend calling yourself names you have not saved anything you know all you all you've done is cause yourself more stress and anxiety and if you had taken that energy and rewritten your story and focused on rewriting your story you'd be a much happier human being and the people mm-hmm. around you would be much happier with you
0: mm-hmm. so
1: you're going to expend the energy one way or the other either negatively or proactively and positively
0: okay that that makes sense. That makes sense. Well, yep. this has just been a wonderful conversation. Lori, any other um, comments or questions that you have? No, just I, I totally agree
2: with that. Um, I was a career person. I was used to working 60, 70 hours a week, um, loved my family, but did not have the time for them. And then when suddenly I could not work, I actually made time to smell the roses and see things around me. I lived in this house for 18 years and never knew what a beautiful view I had, how many beautiful birds I had, and all the beautiful things that God had given me. And I think that sometimes, although I did not wish this to be the stop of my career, um, I think when you take time to Stop and see what you have around you. There is so much more happiness and joy in seeing what is there, um, and hopefully you can use that to overcome the hard parts in life. Mm. Oh, that's beautifully said, Lori.
0: Great. Well, I really appreciate both of you uh, joining me today to have this conversation about the stress solution. And again, um, Dr. C.'s book is called The Stress Solution Using Empathy and Cognitive Behavioral Therapy to resu- reduce anxiety and develop resilience, and don't we all need that? Um, you can find the book at Amazon. Um, just go ahead and type that in, and it'll pop right up. Or you can always go to his website, which is balanceyoursuccess.com, balanceyoursuccess.com. Was there any other information, uh, contact information you wanted people to have, Dr. Steen?
1: Well no, that that's uh that's about it, Laurie. My the, the website Balancer Success is my information. Uh I can receive emails from that site as well and, and my other writings and blogs and so forth are there as well.
0: Wonderful, well, thank you again so much for your time today. I so appreciate uh, both of you taking time out of your out of your busy schedule um, in wrapping up again, I just want to invite people to uh, join us if if they are available November eleventh through the eighteenth for our dementia friendly cruise and symposium. We are going to have a riot. Um, we just have i think a really nice balance of education and, um, fun and relaxation. Um, here also on, um, Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, you can go back and listen to all of our archive shows. We've been doing this, gosh, over six years now. Um, So please feel free to check those out. Our most recent shows, we had Dr. Jeff Bjork on, uh, and he talked about his book, Twilight Meditations um, with Dementia, and it was really about his... um, How his mother perceived dementia and how her faith kind of got her through. And um, it's just a a beautiful book. I think that's very uplifting. We also had Nancy uh, Kreisman with us again. uh, And she talked about her book, Meaningful Connections When Engaging with a Person with Dementia. Uh, so, again, there's all kinds of shows out there with so much information. Our last Dementia Chat, again, which is a webinar, which Lori is part of, where our experts have dementia, we talked about the impact of humor and laughter when living with dementia, and that is just so critically important for us to all Understand if you're out In Massachusetts I will be out there In October with uh, A Terra Senior Living doing some Screenings of his neighbor Phil and some Educational programs so I would love To see you then you can Check out our blog there was also a uh, Interview that I did with uh, Christy and Christian Kate And uh, we just Talked about simple ideas to shift Our dementia care and how you can get Involved with that uh, last, I want to give a shout-out to our friends at the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation. They just do a marvelous job, and they've got a, a big uh, training therapy on a new brain uh, therapy program that they have. So go and check them out at alzheimersprevention.org. And don't forget about our Memory Cafes. If you um, just go to the Memory Cafe directory, um, which is put together um, courtesy of Calendar Cards You could find out where a support group is uh, For you and your loved one Again, for those of you that aren't familiar with the Memory Cafe They are for people with early memory loss And, um, and their care partner And with that, we're going to sign off And we'll all talk to you soon You guys have a great week And again, appreciate all your likes, clicks, and shares Bye now